Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got a lot of good martinis for you today. Okay, we got two good martinis for you. The other one, very, very bad. And we're going to talk about all of that as we move forward here. Jim, it is October 5th, November 8th is midterm election day, of course, in some states, including our own here in Virginia. Early voting has started, so the the votes are already coming in. Uh, we're going to get probably a, a bunch more debates, at least in a lot of these races, as we get closer to election day. As we've discussed in the past, some Democrats want nothing to do with debates, hoping that'll carry them across the finish line. But there are races that um, people are watching both locally and nationally to see where the, the, the trend is going to go here. And one that they're watching on the House side is right in our backyard. I don't think either one of us live in this one. I know I don't. I'm in Virginia 7. I think you're in 8. Uh, this is Virginia 10. Uh, for many years, it was Frank Wolf's district. Then it was briefly Barbara Comstock. And now it's Democrat Jennifer Wexton. She's up against a Republican nominee named Hung Kao, who is of Vietnamese descent but has an extraordinarily impressive academic and military career. They had a debate over the weekend, and one of the points that Hung Kao was trying to uh, express to his voters was that Jennifer Weston keeps calling him an extremist. Because that's what the the Democrats say about everybody now. They're an extremist if you've ever agreed with Donald Trump about something. You're an extremist if you're pro-life. You're an extremist if you want parents to know what's going on with uh, their own kids in terms of transgender policy in the schools, and on and on and on. But in the midst of explaining why calling him an extremist was wrong, he got to tell his own story, which is picture perfect not only for the Republican Party, but what America should be all about. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so proud to come here in this amazing country. I mean, where else can a Vietnamese refugee come here, grow up in West Africa, and come back here, go to the, one of the top high schools in the country, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, go to the United States Naval Academy, get a master's degree in physics in, at Naval Postgraduate School, go to Harvard, MIT. Where? Where else but America? I deserve to be called American, just like everyone else. And be called something other than American is, is abhorrent. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to represent every single one of you. Whether you vote for me or not, I will stay out there. I'm not going to hide in my office. I'm not going to be absent for two years where people don't know where I am. I'm going to be out there every day listening to you. Whether you agree with me or not, I'm going to be there. So, uh, Jim, this is a redrawn district, I think fairly substantially. You know, the last couple of cycles, it was heavily uh, tilting towards Wexton. Uh, pretty comfortable wins. It's supposed to be more competitive this time. Uh, we will find out. But uh, win or lose, Hung Kao, a very impressive Republican and uh, more candidates like him nationwide, I think would be a pretty good idea. Greg, in a year where the Republican primary process has not always generated the uh, sharpest knives in the drawer, not always top-tier candidates who will be easy to elect in the uh, districts or states that they're aiming to win in. Hung Kao is just this, you know, maybe maybe the very best candidate we've seen this cycle. Certainly he's up there. Um, you kind of catch that in the audio of that clip. I, I think, you know, one of the things that helps is when a candidate knows they're not an extremist and is confident about what they believe and is confident in explaining it and capable of explaining what they believe in a way that does not make them come across as some sort of wide-eyed, spittle-fleck emanating, you know, Yosemite Sam maniac uh, of this. The other thing, which, you know, I think was a really terrific example 
Um, he's on, you know, he gets asked this very basic question, sort of thing that should be a simple and basic question for candidates this year. Who won the 2020 presidential election? You know, I believe the specific wording was, do you believe the 2020 election was free, fair, and untainted? And do you believe that Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States? Now, this shouldn't be a hard question for a lot of Republican candidates, but they know there are a bunch of people in the Republican grassroots who believe the election was stolen and Venezuelan hackers and, and all that kind of stuff. And so Cal puts out just the, the best answer imaginable. Quote, sir, Joe Biden is the president of the United States. If you don't believe me, go to your gas pumps or your grocery stores, and that'll tell you who is. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're laughing. The crowd laughs. It is just like boom perfection. And my suspicion is that even if you are a MAGA hat wearing Donald Trump diehard fan and you really do think the election was, you probably hear that answer. You think, hell yeah, that's dead. You're right. You tell him, hunk cow, you know, and it kind of gets people to stop focusing on the 2020 election. Whatever you think of it, it's done. Biden has been president for nearly two years now. I know every once in a while Trump will say on Truth Social they're going to reinstate him or something like that. No, that's not going to happen. It is time to focus on the election to come. It's time to focus on the election of 2022. It's time to focus on the election of 2024. A little bit after that, it's time to look forward. And Hung Kao just nails that. And um, look, I don't want to put the cart before the horse. He's got a House district to win. I don't think... I think you can classify that as that as kind of the classic swing district. This is not a slam dunk, even though he does seem to be a really good candidate. But if he does win, then when you just see these kinds of natural instincts and charisma on the stump, I you know you could imagine him running for statewide office sometime down the road if that sort of thing interests him. Don't want to put the cart before the horse, but I'm just saying it looks like we have a genuine talent right over there in the in a district not too far from us. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be at least three slugfests in the Virginia uh, congressional delegation uh, in the next few weeks here. We've got that race, uh, Wexton and Cow. You've got Abigail Spanberger and Yesley Vega in the district where I live now since uh, they redistricted me out of Rob Whitman's really safe Republican district. Thanks for that. Uh, but uh, and then down in the Tidewater area, you've got uh, Elaine Luria against Jen Kiggins, uh, all of which are currently held by Democrats. Uh, but uh Currently, uh, I think Republicans have a decent shot at taking some of those and could be a big factor in helping them take back the House majority. So we will find out. In the meantime, Jim, we'd love to see a fast-growing lead for Hung Kao in Virginia 10, but uh, for the moment, we'll settle for fast-growing trees. We still love the fast-growing trees we have in our house, the, the fig tree, the monstera, the lemon tree, just brightening up the house. Uh, they look great. They arrived in fantastic condition. And if you want that type of uh, sprucing up for your home, either inside or outside, go to fastgrowingtrees.com. The experts at Fast Growing Trees curate thousands of plants, so that you can find the perfect fit for your specific climate, location, and needs. And you don't have to drive around to nurseries and big gardening centers and make a mess in your car and all that stuff. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants will get shipped to your door in just one or two days. Now, whether you're looking to add some privacy or maybe you want some shade or you just want natural beauty in your yard, Fast Growing Trees has in-house experts ready to help you make the right decision with growing and care advice available 24-7. So go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash martini and you'll get 15% off your entire order now through October 15th. So act soon. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash martini. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash martini. All right, Jim, you mentioned the great line that Hung Kao had on gas prices. Um, 
they're going to get worse. We talked about this earlier in the week. Uh, you talked about inventories on the West Coast have already had prices shooting up there. Uh, just saw uh, anecdotal evidence from folks I follow on Twitter that it's starting to happen in the Midwest now. So it uh, looks like it might be creeping east. And now what we suspected might be happening uh, when we were discussing this a couple of days ago is happening with respect to OPEC. I'm sorry, OPEC plus. Uh, OPEC agreed on its deepest cuts to oil production since the 2020 COVID pandemic at a meeting in Vienna on Wednesday, curbing supply in an already tight market despite pressure from the United States and others to pump more. The cut could spur a recovery in oil prices that have dropped to about $90 from about $120 three months ago on fears of a global economic recession, rising U.S. interest rates, and a stronger dollar. The U.S. had pushed OPEC not to proceed with the cuts, arguing that fundamentals don't support them, a source familiar with the matter said. And uh, there were some sources suggesting that the White House was panicking over the possibility of this happening. Uh, and now it looks like it is going to happen, Jim. And and, and the, the article from Reuters here that the Free Beacon has reposted, it wasn't just that the U.S. was asking them to not cut. They were asking them to increase production. So it's an entire 180 uh, from what the U.S. wanted here. So reduce supply, demand relatively inelastic means prices are going up. It's pretty simple. Yeah, this this is bad on a bunch of fronts. One of the things that jumps out is, you, you know, listeners probably remember mid-July, President Biden traveled to Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, he had promised to turn them into a pariah because of the killing of Khashoggi. And obviously that turned out to not be a, a sustainable policy. And he was going to have to make nice with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And we had the infamous fist bump picture, right? So we, we knew the president was going to have some embarrassment. The president was going to have to, you know, take his lumps in, in that visit. But the hopes was that by doing that, the Saudis would kind of let bygones be bygones and that this would be a little bit of a pat on the back and they would start using their, their influence to encourage OPEC to increase production. And in fact, at that meeting, there were some vague promises that, yes, Saudi Arabia was going to do this. And then they didn't keep those promises. And in fact, Saudi Arabia started reducing it. And heading into this week, the fear was that OPEC plus was going to make the decision to reduce production by a million barrels a day, which would be bad. Right Now, the US, the other thing, which, as you noted, and, you know, both CNN and other uh, sources are reporting, the administration really put what they called a full court press on every you know, OPEC member that we have good diplomatic relations with, telling them not to do this. Uh, and we have, you know, good, you know, reasonably good relations with all of them. And apparently Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was one of the folks who was put forth in this. And they're called, they're working the phones and they're basically telling all these people, don't do this. We will, you know, find ways to make this up to you. But we really can't afford to have this happen in our economy right now. It did not work. And in fact, I think you look at this decision where they announced, no, they're not cutting it a million barrels a day. They're cutting it two million barrels a day, which nobody was talking about at the beginning of the week. I wonder if the diplomatic effort backfired, that whether that's something that the Biden administration was trying to do, alienated all these people, these countries they were trying to influence. Um, so now, look, what, you know, obviously these cuts are going to go into effect in November. So I'm hearing people saying, oh, this shouldn't drive up gas prices now. But remember, the gas station has to buy the gas for down the road. So if they think things are going to be more expensive one month from now, two months from now, three months from now, they have to charge more now so that they can afford it you know, a couple months down the road. So my expectation is you are going to see prices go up pretty quickly. Uh, there is a guy who helps run Gas Buddy, uh, that site that kind of helps you figure out where prices are. He said anything about 15 to 30 cents a gallon increase. 
I don't know if it's going to kick in immediately. You may want to head out and fill up your tank while you can. Um, but as I was pointing earlier this week, this is, you know, gas prices are down from that mid-June high, but they're not cheap anywhere. And God help you if you're in California. We talked about it again earlier in the week where there, I, I passed by a place. It was seven bucks a gallon. Uh, now, California has some of its own unique issues. They have particular requirements for what kind of blends they use. They have higher emission standards. And they have a bunch of refineries that are out of commission, um, three of them for planned maintenance and one because of uh, some sort of electrical or energy problem. But the whole country is going to be facing an energy problem at this rate. This is really bad news out of OPEC. And I really can't, you know, it's very hard to construe this as anything less than a middle finger to the Biden administration. And I think this is one more example of the administration, you know, patting itself on the back and telling us that America is back and, oh, you know, we, we, you know, where the grownups are back in charge and lo and behold, the results are not comparable to the hype. And we've had all kinds you know, on this podcast, we talked over and over again, you have to increase domestic production. You have to increase domestic refinery capacity. That is the only way to ensure that your citizens will not get gouged at the price, not by the evil, you know, don't blame the guy at the gas station. They make most of their money off the chips you buy in the convenience store anyway. Don't blame, you know, and the oil companies don't make nearly as much per gallon as, say, the state government does on their tax rates uh, per, per gallon. A lot of this is cut by, set by supply and demand. The administration has not opened up nearly as many leases as other preceding administrations have. This is the Biden administration's energy policy catching up to it and biting it in the you know where. And, you know, Biden's got no one to blame but himself for this. And the, kind of that last aspect, thinking back to that trip to Saudi Arabia and the fist bump. You know, Greg, listeners to this podcast know we are not fans of Joe Biden by any stretch of the imagination, but I really don't like seeing any president get pushed around like this. I, I think really feel like it's, it's almost like he's getting bullied. He, he, you know, that those old cartoons of the, the big guy on the beach kicking sand in the face of the weak guy. Biden really looks like he got played for a sucker. As bad as it is, and as much as I can't stand it, you know, can't stand Biden. When Biden gets played for a sucker, it means the American people are getting played for a sucker. This is really bad. Obviously, people are going to be paying higher prices at the pump. I, you know, this probably is going to rebound to help Republicans in the midterms, but that's not the way you want to do it. And uh, I just feel like we're heading into a, you know, our, our energy situation is getting worse and worse under this administration. And, you know, just when you thought you might have hit bottom. No, it's absolutely getting worse and worse. And this administration has no answers. And like you said, so many uh, of these problems are self-inflicted because of what they refuse to do on our land, which they lie about claiming, oh, no, we haven't... Uh, cut off federal land for all that much, but they really have. They've made the permitting process an absolute nightmare. And then just on a dime, <laughs> once the prices start going back up more than a dime, you've got KJP uh, responding to uh, Peter Ducey in the press room going, well, you know, this stuff's it's complicated. It's nuanced. You know, you got Putin's <laughs> war. You got the pandemic. And it's, it's really hard to blame uh, you know, the increases on the administration when, like you said, uh, Biden's been out there along with Ron Klain and everybody else. Every day that the average goes down, hey, hey, look what we achieved. And now they're going back up. I don't know. Why what are you going to do? <laughs> Not a surprise. Okay. On to our final martini now, Jim. And this is uh, another good martini. And uh, looking at the polls, uh, it was just a few weeks ago that we uh, did one of our Q&A sessions with our listeners. And one of them was, who do you expect to overperform or underperform expectations uh, based on the electorate in the state. And uh, one of the ones we talked about was Ron DeSantis. You know, Florida usually really tight governor's races. Uh, he won by less than a point. Rick Scott won twice by very narrow margins. Um, before that, Jeb Bush had won pretty comfortably. And I think Charlie Crist 
back when he was a Republican, won fairly comfortably, even in 2006. But, uh, you know, for the most part, DeSantis was up by mid-single digits. But now, Mason-Dixon survey down there has him up not only by 11 points, which is fantastic news for Republicans and DeSantis in particular, but DeSantis is above 50%. It's 52 to 41 uh, against Charlie Crist. And one of the reasons that this may hold, we should point out that this poll was taken, I think, just as the hurricane was approaching, uh, is because the media, despite really, really trying, Jim, has been unable to turn Hurricane Ian into Hurricane Katrina in terms of lack of preparation or lack of response. I mean, any governor of Florida who's not ready for a hurricane uh, would be absolutely derelict. And Ron DeSantis is way too smart uh, to not be prepared for that. Uh, Things uh, were pre-positioned in the Tampa area originally, so it took a little bit of time to get stuff down to where the eye wall actually hit the shore. But when CNN tried to catch him on that, he's like, hey, where were you guys camped out when the hurricane came ashore? We all thought it was coming to Tampa. So we got everything uh, back into where it was really needed uh, as quickly as possible. So uh, what do you make of uh, that dust up? And then and what do you make of where DeSantis currently stands? Sure. Just thing on the hurricane, I was talking to some folks uh I'll just describe those being in the mainstream media, not conservatives, not reflexive Ron DeSantis fans. And I made the point that like, look, if the state government was lousing up the hurricane response, you'd be hearing about it by now. And they agreed. They they basically recognized that the fact that you haven't heard as much about uh, Hurricane Ian and its devastation and what's, you know, how long it's going to take to rebuild and any, you know, how, how obviously a you know, response to a crisis like this, you've got local government responding, you've got state government responding, you've got FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency responding, other federal resources, uh, National Weather Center, National Hurricane Center, things like that. Um, they're all supposed to be working interlocking and it seems like everything has worked uh, within normal parameters and the way they're supposed to. I, I remember seeing this image right before the storm hit of it looked like, God, it had to be like hundreds of electrical uh, cherry picker type uh, vehicles all lined up, just up and down a highway, all lined up. You could see the storm clouds in the distance and it was basically like they're ready. You know, they had, they had crews in them. They had, you know, not all the lights were on, but basically it was as soon as they got the all clear, they were going to head in there and they were going to remove the, they were going to, you know, put power lines back up. They were going to fix the lines that were damaged, get the, law, the the tree branches down, all that kind of stuff, and they would get the power going again. And it seems like the rest- restoration of electrical power is on pace the way it should be. If things were going really bad, that would be the lead story across the country right now of look what a terrible job Ron DeSantis is doing. And by the way, I think it's a really dreadful indicator of how the national news media operates, that they are interested in a terrible natural disaster. And I don't think you can dispute Ian was anything less than a terrible natural disaster, uh, you're more interested if it can be used as a partisan cudgel to attack a Republican governor. Obviously, you heard a lot less about the Democratic governor, uh, Blanco, in Louisiana during Hurricane Go. Oh, no, no, that was all FEMA. It was all federal response. Nobody worried about, you know, Mayor Nagin or, or anybody like that. Um, and then just finally on DeSantis's uh, margin of victory, as, as you pointed out going through that recent history, Look, if it's anything like that Mason-Dixon margin of 11 percentage points, that's a landslide by Florida standards. Yes, I think you can safely say Florida is a purple state that has turned red and that it's a, you know, turning into a reliably Republican state. But it's been that small margin, small but consistent margin in most of those big statewide races in the last couple of years. So, yeah, if, if, if DeSantis wins by 11 percentage points, that's a lot of momentum for 2024. He'll be able to plausibly argue nominating him locks up the state of Florida for the Republican nominee. 
and that he's got broad appeal. He doesn't just appeal to the Republican base, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that, that, you know, there have been a bunch of polls that show DeSantis up, you know, sometimes by a couple points, sometimes by, you know, higher end of uh, single digits. Hitting double digits would be a very big deal. And uh, we will wait and see if the final numbers shake out like this in November. Absolutely right. And uh, Biden's headed down to Florida today and he will meet with DeSantis. Uh, Jim, I don't think we need to give Ron DeSantis any pointers on political instincts here. You know, be professional, do what you need to do, cooperate uh, between the different levels of government. But whatever you do, no hugs, no <laughs> hugs. Yeah, no, no, the respectful handshake is just fine. And yeah, but it's worth noting, by the way, Biden seemed to have, you know, there was, there was a little bit of controversy about whether he had called DeSantis as the hurricane was approaching and stuff. But basically, since that early point, both Biden and DeSantis have been saying exactly the sorts of things you'd want to see them saying. Um, there's a time for partisan battle. There's a time for political battle. And there's a time to put it aside. And when a hurricane is hitting and in the immediate aftermath, that is the time to put it aside. So, so far, the elected officials are behaving a lot more maturely and responsibly than much of the media is. And uh, let's face it, uh, you know, maturity of, of elected officials, Greg, that's not the highest part of it. <laughs> yeah. If you're getting badly outclassed by politicians in an election season, uh, you know, not a good sign for you in the media. But, uh, you know, they, they tried to do what they do. Unfortunately, it failed. And the reason it failed is because there was actually competent leadership. And no, the hurricane was not Ron DeSantis's fault because he disagrees with the president on climate change. Jim, uh, another day. Got a couple of good martinis in today, so we'll take that. Uh, we'll see if we can find even more for tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and please tell a friend about us as well. Thank you for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep them coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Get Jim's brand new book, his thriller, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Wednesday, and join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour, like there was this premise, and it was, I think, in, in some ways correct, especially during the second wave of the feminist movement, that there needed to be correctives. But that was predicated on this idea that there were essential sort of sex differences. And, and now we're actually even... I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.